6 to the end of the chapter. Then we'll pray for ourselves and for me. And then we're going to jump in. This is about three sermons in one. And there is a lot of material in it, way too much for me to be able to cover adequately or in some cases fairly. And so I will sometimes give you some um, indication of some other views and other times I'm just going to completely ignore the other views and just tell you what my view is. When I'm doing that, I will try to tell you that's what I'm doing and certainly invite some of your... Um, response to that. One of the ways that you can respond, um, I don't know why, but some people find it hard to just come and talk about it. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to talk to a pastor. Helps, but you don't have to be. I'm just kidding with you. Um, I love talking about the scriptures and I love sharing different views and I certainly love to learn. And so I don't have all insight. but I want better insight. And you'll hear me say some of that again as we go through this passage. Um, And so I encourage you to do that. Come and have a talk. Some of you won't do that, can't do that, don't have time to do that, whatever. Another way you can do it is you can use the yellow card that's in the bulletin. There's space on the back of that. If you're not using it to write a prayer request, if you're not using it for some other means to tick a box and respond to something, then you could use it to make a comment, ask a question, whatever. I encourage you to do that. Um, In fact, I'd like us to do that every Sunday, but maybe that's for next year or we'll build up to it. Um, That's one way. Another way you could do it is you could send me an email. I don't like emails, but you could send an email. Uh, Text would be better for me. Um, So get my mobile, it's in the bulletin, I think. You can send me a text and you could ask a question, you could make a comment, you could text me and make an appointment, have a cup of coffee, and I will buy you a cup of coffee. And I will listen to... Whatever question or whatever you have. Oh, having said that, one of the things I used to do a long time ago when I first came to Sunnybank, so, you know, a long time ago, um, I started something which I had in my previous church, which was, I called it, um, it used to be called in my previous church, Pizza with a Pastor. So the church would provide pizzas and we would have an afternoon where you would come along if you wanted to eat lunch or whatever and I would be there and you could talk about anything. You could ask any question about anything. You'd talk about the Bible, you could talk about the church, you could suggest ideas for ministry. If you had a concern about something, if you didn't like the song we sang on Sunday morning, if you don't like the musicians, if you don't like standing and greeting, whatever. Get it? You could come along and talk about that. Now, when we did that, we started doing that here at Sunnybank. We did it, I don't know, three or four times, maybe five at the most or something. And and the last time we did it was that we had about 20 people in the room, which is great, but it's usually better one-on-one. I mean, having 20 people in the room is okay if you want want to talk about the same thing. But if 20 people have come with 20 different issues, then the chances are very high that you're not going to get a chance to talk about your issues. Does that make sense? Uh, we, uh, I didn't tell you this bit, uh, we eventually we killed the idea of having pizzas for various reasons. <laughs> so it became coffee. Okay? And then it was better that I didn't meet you in a coffee shop. And so I'd go to the coffee shop, I'd take my Bible with me, and these days you take your iPad and your phone and everything else, and I could stay in a coffee shop all afternoon. And you could just turn up, sit down, have a chat, walk away. I've done that. Um, 
That doesn't, for whatever reason, appear to be as effective. Uh, so I spend a lot of time by myself in coffee shops. That's okay with me. I like coffee shops, and I can have as much coffee as I like, and I get to know the staff. So it's a good witnessing opportunity for me. It's building a bridge and a relationship, and that helps me because I live in a little Christian bubble. I don't have a lot of contact with, um, with non-Christian people. Um, so why am I saying all of that? Well, we might start that again somewhere, somehow, particularly on a Sunday afternoon. We might do it in the conference room. If that's available, I'll have to check. It probably won't be. It'll be the meeting room. Um, but I thought that would be a good opportunity for an avenue for you to be able to communicate or voice or share a concern or something like that. And of course, it doesn't have to be me in the room. It could be another one of the pastors. It could be anyone on the pastoral team could be present as well. Okay? So stay tuned for that. I won't do that, obviously, until I come back from London, which is where Rhonda and I are going in two weeks. So we're here this Sunday, we're here next Sunday, and then Father's Day, we're not here. That's the following Sunday. We'll be in London with my daughter and son-in-law having Father's Day with them. So please pray for us as we travel. I'm going to read you God's Word. Verse 6. Uh, the Apostle John has just mentioned Jesus and uh, confessing that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. So he picks it up in verse 6. This is the one, Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He didn't come by water only, but by the water and the blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. So there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Um, Yep. Verse 9, we accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given us about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in their heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. If, and if anyone sees his brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control, the influence of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Hmm. It's pretty clear, isn't it? I hope it is. Because I think I'm going to raise the level of confusion. That's not my desire. So I have worked pretty hard to try and make this clear. 
Well, anyway, let's pray. Uh, Father, it's always appropriate for us to thank you for your revelation, for your word, for the presence of your spirit. And Lord, we find ourselves this morning in a portion of your word which appears straightforward, but the more we think about it, the more complex and difficult it becomes. So we simply ask that you might illumine us, that you would open our eyes to see truth. That which scholars debate and argue about, for that not to be our concern, but for us to understand what you want to say to us through this portion of your word. So feed us and nourish us by your truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 6 to 12, that first paragraph. Many sceptics, people will say, they argue or they allege that Christianity, those who follow the Lord Jesus, are simply relying upon a psychological crutch. That's for weak people. You've probably heard that. You may even have thought it at some point. Maybe you still do. They would argue that it's Christianity is a purely subjective experience. It's nice if it works for you, but it's not for everybody. Um, And it's certainly inappropriate for you to be forcing that, imposing that upon others. So they take the position that it's wrong to share your faith or to evangelise. And they most certainly say um, it's wrong for us to say that if you don't agree with us, if you're not a Christian, then you're wrong. That's the position of the world. That's what they feel and say. And even for us to say, listen, Christianity has changed my life and I am one who would say that and have testified to that. But even that's not a healthy or helpful way to communicate with those who don't yet believe. Because their response will often simply be, well, that's great, that's great for you. Works for you. It doesn't work for me and it doesn't work for other people. They would also argue, you know, um, what is it? Buddhism has changed Richard Gere's life. Scientology changed Tom Cruise's life. Cabal Judaism, I think it's changed Madonna's life. So that subjective personal testimony, sometimes, while valid for ourselves and good for our own personal assurances, is sometimes not effective in terms of evangelism or convincing others. That's not always the case, sometimes it is. So while it's valuable, Personally, subjectively, having an understanding and experience of the living Lord Jesus, it gives us this inner assurance. Um, But something else is needed for a foundation for our faith. The Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, about the, the validity and the necessity of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, our faith is futile. Uh... We are still in our sins, that God is, we're making God out to be a liar. We're saying something that he didn't do, if there is no resurrection. And the crux of it is, Christian belief is based upon and needs the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or it is simply another religion or religious experience upon historical reality. But that's the point. Authentic Christianity has a historical foundation. That's what John has been arguing all the way through his letter. That we know and believe that Jesus Christ came in human flesh, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again from the dead, that he performed miracles when he was here. This is verifiable, historical. And people who come into that awareness and experience of that true living person will be obedient to him. They'll obey his commands and they'll be loving to one another. 
That's what John has been at pains to point out. Because in the church that he is writing to, and the church is probably around him in the community where he is living, the church has experienced an influx and then an exit of false teachers who have come in and have divided the church, have come in and have brought confusion, who have come in and said, all the historical stuff is not valid, you don't need it. What you need is simply this esoteric visionary experience, this secret knowledge. And they're removing the found, very foundation of what makes Christianity um, unique and true. And so John is writing to oppose that influence and those contradictions. That's exactly what he is doing in this paragraph. Now, there is a textual issue I'm not going to get into, but I'm quite happy to talk about anybody with this at length, but not in the pulpit. In verse 8, at the beginning of it, you'll notice in the NIV it has a very small little letter, subscript, the letter A in my version. And then down the bottom, it will tell you that late manuscripts of the Vulgate, the Latin Bible, they also add these words. There are three witnesses that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And these are three that testify on earth. And then he talks about the water, the blood, and the Spirit. And it's a footnote in the Bible because, as the footnote says, it's not in any of the early Greek manuscripts. It is in a Latin manuscript. And Erasmus, who was the one who started translating, the, uh, wrote the first Greek New Testament and took whatever few manuscripts he had to write it when his first edition did not have that verse in it. Others comparing it to a Latin version that they had said, this is missing. Erasmus said, if you can produce for me a Greek version that has these verses in it, I'll put it in my second edition. Somebody came to him with a Greek manuscript with those verses in it. And Erasmus's comment was, he thought the ink was still wet and still drying. In other words, he was pretty sure they had inserted it, but they hadn't found it. And so why am I taking some time this morning to tell you this? Because when a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, one of the questions he will ask you, she will ask you, is, do you read the Bible? They find out you're a Christian. Do you read the Bible? Yes. Which Bible do you read? And if you say King James, they have a whole spiel worked out for you because that verse is in the King James for different reasons. Don't, I don't have time. The reality is it's not part of the original manuscripts. It's not part of any of the Church Father quotes or anything else. So everybody is, well, 99.9% .9 of scholars are very convinced it's not original. It's been added later and centuries later. In fact, a 15th century Latin manuscript is the closest we now have, referring to others. So there's that textual issue. There's another issue. And I could spend the next uh, half hour just talking about this alone, but I clearly don't have time. It's an interpretation issue. What does John mean when he says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ? He didn't come by water only, but he came by water and the blood. What's the water and the blood? And there are different views. Let me jump over all of them and let me tell you just what I think it is. Um, the water is his baptism. Jesus is the one who came and was at his baptism. The father testified, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. God the Father giving public testimony to his son at his baptism. The blood is referring to the cross. 
And at the cross, God also gave public testimony to the reality that this is my son. The sky went dark. The temple and the curtain tore in two. The graves were opened. Even the Roman centurion said, truly this man was the son of God. God was testifying to the reality of who this person was at the crucifixion. And the spirit, well, the spirit also testifies, and that would be referring in our terminology to Pentecost. Because Jesus made the statement that he would go and he would send the spirit and that he would be, they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And the spirit of God comes, and when the spirit of God comes, he, through diff- all different sorts of ways, but ultimately through inspiring the scriptures and um, emboldening the apostles, so you have Acts 4, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers and people of Israel, let it be known to you that this person, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you killed, is a stone that the builders rejected. This man is the Son of God. It's public testimony to who he was by the Spirit. I think that's what John is talking about here, countering the false teacher's influence. Um, Jesus is the one who came by water. He was baptised historically and physically. He died historically and physically. And the Spirit of God was poured out because he rose from the dead and sent the Spirit. These three, his baptism, his crucifixion, his resurrection, the coming of the Spirit, publicly testify to who Jesus is. I think that's what he means. That's verses 7 and 8. So then John goes on and says, verse 9, If in a court of law we accept men's testimony, witnesses, then God's testimony has got to be greater. This is what God said. And so if you believe what people say in a court of law, surely you should believe what God has been saying about Jesus. That's what he says, verse 10. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has that testimony internally in their heart by the Spirit, because the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God, and thereby we cry, Abba, Father. John's alluding to all of these things. Um, Anyone who does not believe God has made God out to be a liar, saying, well, that's not true. God's telling, if God said that and it's not true, then God must be a liar. Um, Verse 11 and 12. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. It's only in his son. If you want eternal life, if you want to go on to the next life and um, live eternally, it's only through Jesus. There is no other way. That's what John's testifying. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. Simple. Black and white simplicity. The person we believe in, the Lord Jesus Christ, was here physically, historically. It can be verified. It's been testified to. And John only gives us those three. There are others. You read his gospel. He'll add another two or three witnesses as well. But that's not our purpose this morning. So, I'm not sure where all of you are at spiritually. Do you know Jesus? Are you aware that he was baptized that he died that he rose again that he gives his spirit that it's only through jesus that he gives eternal life forgiveness of sins do you know that do you know it here and do you know it experientially here have you received him have you responded to him then let me encourage you if you haven't study the gospel pick any gospel Gospel of John's a good one, but pick any one of the four Gospels, read it thoroughly, read it critically, read it objectively, ask whatever questions you like, but see what conclusion you come to of who is this person? Who is he? And there's very clear testimony, which has been, as I said, historically verified. There's lots of resources you can come and have a chat about it. Let's move on.
That's the easy one. Verse 13 and following. Um, John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So these are the people who are believers. They're in God's family. So that you may know that you have eternal life. This word know is one of the catch cries of the Gnostics. They, that's what their name actually means. It's a Greek word for knowing. Secret knowledge is what they profess to have. And so John, I counted 37 times um, where he uses the word know, K-N-O-W, in this brief letter. He wants believers to know, to know with assurance that we are in the kingdom, that we are part of his family. He wants us to be confident and assured when we die, we leave this life, we go to be with him. It's not arrogance. It's not us saying because of how good we are, therefore God would accept us. No, not at all. It's none of that. It's knowing how reliable and faithful and true he is, that he said, if we repent, if we believe, if we ask to be forgiven, he will do it. And he said that he would come for us and he said he would take us to be with him. So I am confident because I am confident in him. He is reliable. And John writes. And so he goes on to say, because we have that assurance, because we have that knowledge, this relationship with God through Jesus, this is the confidence, verse 14, that we have in approaching him, approaching God. And that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. The more you think about that verse, it's a wonderful promise and it's, got a, it's a great song that goes with it. But the more you look at it and the more you take it literally, the more you're going to have an issue with your prayer life. So I wanted to say this as a disclaimer. Much greater minds than mine part company over this passage. My role this morning is not to raise the complexity of it, but simply to be a faithful shepherd to try and feed the sheep as best I know how. This is this bit, 13, 14, 15, and especially 16 to 18, a difficult passage. And as I said, the more serious you look into it, the more you realise, oh, that doesn't quite fit with what we're saying. Rhonda and I like to watch um, MasterChef. Anybody else here like to watch MasterChef? Anybody hate MasterChef? <laughs> My kitchen rules? Well, I, I, I ask for your compassion and grace as I give this illustration. On MasterChef, they often bring out incredibly complex recipes, very difficult, and some of them are just unbelievable. And the candidates, the amateurs, have got to prepare it. So they follow the recipe as best they can. Invariably, it doesn't turn out... Well, it doesn't turn out as good as the professional has made it, but some of them go pretty close. But all of them, even though it's a complex recipe, they are still able to produce something of nourishment, something which is, wow, that's still pretty good. So too for us this morning. Though this passage is highly complex, and as I, there are scholars in four different camps, very good, outstanding scholars in four different camps. And anyway... Um, Though it's complex, nonetheless, out of it, we can still derive something of nourishment to 
our spiritual walk. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, on this passage, at the very least, what we can say is that John wrote this to encourage us in prayer. John's trying to communicate to us, certainly, that God is a prayer-hearing God. He's also repeating something the Lord Jesus said on numerous occasions that sounds very similar to things in the Gospel of John. This is the confidence we have in approaching him. If we ask anything, according to his will, that's the condition, according to his will, he hears us. Which implies, not that he just hears us, oh I know what you said, it's rather he hears us with a view to saying yes. And if we know that he hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we have received what we have asked from him. If it's God's will, we can ask for it. And this promise seems to be that God will hear us and God will give it to us if it's his will. Well, then you think about your prayer life and mine, I'll share with you. Over the years, I've prayed for things that I, sh- I thought was God's will. Well, I haven't received it. Now, it's either still coming, or I suspect on some, and so, on some of them I know the answer is no. So how does that fit? Well, clearly the mistake is with me. There's something wrong with my understanding of God's will. But I thought these were God's will. Have you ever prayed for the salvation of somebody? Yes. And they're not saved? Well, I thought that was God's will. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Of course it's his will. Well, I've been praying for my dad for a long time. We're not through yet. And maybe one day he will come to faith. Maybe he won't. That could be in that category. I've prayed for Christians who have gotten off track. I've prayed for the restoration of Christians to the path. I'm still waiting. I've prayed for the reconciliation of Christian marriages and they haven't been reconciled. They've busted up. I've had numerous occasions. James chapter 5, if anybody's sick, call for the elders of the church. Come, anoint them with oil. And the prayer of faith, the person will be healed. I've done that and they've gotten worse. How does it fit? So if you want to be really honest about it, then there are difficulties, there are mysteries associated with it. So what can we derive from this? Well, there's certainly a general principle, verses 14 and 15, and then there is this very difficult example he gives, verses 16 to 18. Let's go quickly through the six things he does say about prayer. Number one, he says that when we do pray to this, and prayer is essential for us as Christians, because if we're not praying, we're not relying on God, we're relying on ourselves. So prayer is essential in this relationship we have. That's John's point. Um, He says that we can have confidence when we come before God. We don't come into God's presence cowering and uh, being awkward. We can come confidently. We're his kids, just like our kids can confidently come to us. They have right of access that other people don't have. I've told you this story on numerous occasions before, and I don't have time to give a much better illustration, so you get this 30-second one. In the very first church that we pastored, Seaforth Baptist Church, the office was in the house, in the manse, and the office had a sliding door. So the difference between the pastor's office, vestry office, and the house was a sliding door. And that was difficult for whatever reasons. But I said to my kids, we're both little kids at this time, I said, when the door is shut, Dad's in there and he's either praying, he's working, or praying computer games, whatever he's doing is busy. (laughs) And unless it's really important, don't come in. But if it's really important, 
you have access anytime. I will stop what I am doing and you have access to me straight away. Other people, if somebody rang, for instance, Rhonda would answer the phone and say, he's not available at the moment. He'll get back to you later or whatever. But my kids could come straight in. That's always been my rule. Doesn't matter what I'm doing, who I'm with, doesn't matter, they have access. Um, and so the only one who ever tested that was my son. I think I told you this, time's up. Um, he came in one day, he opened the door and he stepped inside and he looked at me. And I stopped whatever I was doing, probably reading or writing something and writing an essay for college or whatever. <clears throat> Just put that down, I turned around, I looked at him and I said, yes, son, what is it? And he said, I just wanted to see what you would do. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. I just wanted to see what you would do. He was pushing the boundaries of saying, hey, you said I could do it. Well, I, can I? And he did. So I belted him and I sent him out. And <laughs> wasn't that appropriate? Um, he did break the rule, if it's important. Well, that's pretty important, isn't it? Child security and safety and all that stuff. So anyway, how much more we can go to our Heavenly Father anytime, anyway? We can come confidently. That's what John says. It says also that we come before him. We come into his presence. If you stop and think about that, what that means is we're not just saying words into the air. We're not just on rote. We are consciously connecting with him. We are speaking to him. That's what I think it means when we come before him. You're concentrating. You are communicating, humbling yourself, coming confidently to your loving Heavenly Father. Third thing he says is that we ask something specifically. You come into his presence to ask for something, not generally, but specifically about some particular issue. Number four, John says that if we ask anything according to his will, come back to that, he hears us. God hears, as I said already, God hears everything. But this means that he hears us with a view to saying, yes, he's heard us. We have been heard. And if we know that he hears us, we've been heard, then we can expect the affirmative answer. We know that we have the petitions that we've desired of him. How does God answer our prayers? Four ways. Definitely, yes. Differently. Yes, but something different. Delayed. Yes, you can have that, but not right now. You have to wait for it. Definitely, yes. Different, yes, but slightly different. You wanted a VW, now you're getting a Corolla. It's the same thing, but different. Third thing, um, delayed. Yes, you can have that, but you can't have it now. You have to wait for it to come. Yes, yes, yes. Sometimes God will say, no, it's denied. John's not talking about that. We come to our Father confidently, we ask specifically, and it's according to his will. According to his will. That's the condition. He hears us and he'll grant it. Well, this thing, according to his will, is the one that I've already alluded to, is sometimes going to be the one that is quite difficult. Because we're not coming to God simply to get our own way. We're not simply telling him what we want. We want his will. And on some of those very difficult examples that I gave you, I thought that was God's will. And so I wrestle with that. I don't understand. That's a mystery to me. And so all I know by conclusion is that God wants me to pray. God wants me to pour my heart out to him and relate to him. God wants me to trust him. And that's what I do. And I ask as specifically as I can on occasions. And he wants me to be confident that he's in control. 
and to leave the results with him. Well, I think that's the balance of what John is trying to teach us, even though it's certainly um, difficult as you explore it. Then he goes from that to the next illustration. If anyone sees his brother or sister commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, what? If you see a Christian commit a sin, well, question, does brother mean they're a believer? Or does brother, sister mean they are a pretending believer? Well, I think of the former. I think it's a believer. If anyone sees a believer commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, physical death, spiritual death, fellowship death, what does he mean by death? I think he means physical. Then if it doesn't lead to physical death, then he should pray. And God will give him, that brother, life. But if they're a brother, they already have eternal life. That's not that. So is the life then like life restored with God, fellowship with God? That's what he means. I think that's close to it. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death, physical death. There is a sin that leads to death. What's that? There is a sin that leads to death. The church has made the mistake over the centuries of looking at this verse and going, well, these are the sins that lead to death and they have their own little secret list. The Catholic Church does that, Tertullian did that, and that's wrong. Some people argue the sin that leads to death is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is a Christian. So if it's a Christian or is it a pretend Christian? Or I take it to be physical. If you see a brother commit a sin, brother, sister commit a sin, doesn't lead to their physical death, should pray for them. Um, but there is a sin that does lead to physical death. What's that? Well, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, yeah, 11, the Apostle Paul talks about how some of the Corinthians had died because of their sin, the way they were taking the Lord's Supper. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they died because of a sin they committed. John may also mean you might commit a sin like murder and that you might end up on the death penalty, leads to death. May mean something like that. There are some sins that lead to death. And then John says, I'm not saying that you should pray about that. What does that mean? Well, at least it means you don't pray for the people who have died. All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. All of that together, what does it mean for us? When you see somebody commit a sin, it does not say, tell the pastor so the pastor can go tell them. doesn't say that. It doesn't say, when you see a brother or sister commit a sin, that you should ring up your friends and you should tell them what that sin is, that person, so that you could pray for them. doesn't say to do that. Nor does it say, when you see your brother or sister sin, that you should judge them and you should shake your head and say, how dare they do that? What it does say is that when you see your brother or sister commit a sin, you should pray. You should talk to God about that. And you should talk to God about that before you talk to them about it. Make sense? You invite God into that situation. 
What happens if the sin they have committed actually leads to a disease or to death? Well, until they die, pray for them. Once they are physically dead, don't pray for them. It is unbiblical and therefore biblically incorrect to pray for the dead. Their fate is sealed. It's inappropriate for us to pray for Bob Weston, who has passed away. You can't pray for Bob. You can pray about Bob. You can give thanks for his life. But you can't pray a blessing or for God to do something with Bob. It's sealed. It's finished. And there, not half a dozen, but you're heading up that way, four or five times in the scriptures, and this is one of them, where God says, don't pray about that. Does it with Moses? Does it with Joshua? Does it with Jeremiah? Does it here with John? There are some situations where the Lord says, don't talk to me about that. I'm not doing it. That's what I think it means. What's the problem with my view? My view has a mixture of the physical with the spiritual. And good Bible interpreters argue that if you're going to go physical, it has to both be physical. If it's going to be spiritual, it's both spiritual. And they try to follow through those principles. That's the only way that I can make sense of the passage. Oh, I don't have my phone. I took a photo of Kenneth Woost, who's a brilliant Greek scholar, who said this, and I wanted to read it to you. But he basically says, in my view, this is what the passage means. But beyond that, the rest of the verse is an enigma to this author and he does not dare to try to communicate his understanding. Here is a brilliant Greek scholar saying, what does this mean? I'm not sure. It's difficult. So we can't be dogmatic about it. But that's my best shot at it. Then John gives a review and our time is gone. He has a whole list of things. We know that anyone who is born of God, who is a believer, will not continue in sin. The one who is born of God, the Lord Jesus will keep him safe the evil one can't harm him can attack contempt but can't harm unless we are disobedient we know that we are the children of God and the whole world lies under the control of the evil one under his influence we also know the son of God has come has given us an understanding knowledge so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true even in his son Jesus Jesus is the true God and eternal life notice that that's one of a strong New Testament claims to the deity of Jesus. We are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Where did that come from? Idols. What he means, what's an idol? An idol is any human substitute that people put in the place of God. Keep yourself from idols. Stick to the truth. The historical truth is revealed through Jesus, his baptism, his crucifixion and his resurrection. This is the truth. Stick to that. Don't go making up fanciful, interpretive, visionary experiences like the false teachers are doing. Reject that. Stay true. We've run out of time. But a bit, we do need to sing that song, I'm sure. We'll sing. Can we just sing the first verse? That'll do. First verse and chorus. Let's stand together. I'll pray at the end of the song.
Heavenly Father, again, we pray that you would instill in us the truths of your word. Help us to be true uh, to our best understanding of what your will is. Increase our confidence with you in prayer. Um, and deepen in us the assurance that we can have in knowing Jesus and knowing him eternally. And give us grace and wisdom. If we see a brother or sister sin, to pray and to respond to your clear directions. Lord, thank you for the certainty that we have, that we can know Jesus. We can know that he is the truth. We can know that we have eternal life. And that this knowledge gives us an assurance. Grant that blessing to each one of us and into our families. Go with us now into this week. We ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Apologies.